Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Sponsored by the Sue and Lynn Schneider Charitable Fund. Despite being in his position for less than one year, State Auditor Scott Fitzpatrick has already made plenty of headlines. Fitzpatrick, who assumed the role in January, found himself at odds with Attorney General Andrew Bailey this year over how much a set of constitutional amendments legalizing abortion in Missouri would cost the state. On this episode of Politically Speaking, Fitzpatrick joins the show to talk about the fiscal note he drafted for those amendments, how his work as auditor has gone so far, and how he thinks Republicans will fare in the 2024 election. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equal. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. we got to find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't want to leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. Joining me via Zoom in St. Louis, he is the political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. Jason Merzenbaum. And our guest today, he is the state auditor for the state of Missouri. Scott Fitzpatrick. All right, auditor, thank you so much for being on the show. You know, last time you were on the show, you were running to be Missouri's next auditor, and now you are Missouri's auditor. How do you feel you have adjusted to the position? Well, I think I've uh, adjusted well, but you know, it's kind of a biased sample there. And uh, I've I've enjoyed the work so far. It's been a it's it's very different than the treasurer's office or in the, or the legislature. And um, you know, one that's that's been a little bit of an adjustment to get used to. But uh, I, I like it. I like the people I'm getting to work with, and I'm enjoying the work. Yeah, how has the position differed from your prior position as treasurer and in the state legislature? Well, you know, in the legislature, it you know, you're obviously doing policy making. I, I specialized in the budget when I was in legislature, and you know, a lot of people, you know, you people like the budget chairman for the most part, and uh, you know, unless you tell them no, which I did a lot. But in the treasurer's office, everything that we did was very. Uh, positive. It was very feel-good oriented. You're giving people their unclaimed property back. You're you know, creating this scholarship program for low-income students and kids with special needs to go to the school they want to go to. And you're uh, you know, doing those types of things, giving out low-interest loans through the MoBucks program. The auditor's office, people generally don't like to see you coming. And so it's just a different, uh, just kind of a different demeanor in terms of how I think you're felt about, by, you know, and, and by the people you're interacting with, and so that that's probably the biggest difference is, um, you know, you're not out there doing things that people, the people that you're talking to, are loving to to hear about all the time. But I think that the work is really important, and 
you know, we've already done a lot of, uh, I think, impactful things in the year that we less than a year that we've been there, and we have a lot uh, that we're going to do in the years to come. Now, in your swearing in, you said that you were looking forward to working with the legislature. How much of that has actually happened this past session, and and what is some of the work that you want to see accomplished? So, one of the biggest challenges that we've experienced coming into the office was the um, the staffing level that uh, levels in the office, and you know, staffing is a big issue that's consumed. The private sector and the public sector for the last several years throughout the COVID pandemic, for whatever reason, there's just been a lot more demand for uh, people to come to work than there are people who want to work. And in the auditor's office, we're no different. We're in a in a kind of a subset professionally that is struggling to attract young people. You know, the accounting, you know, the accounting uh, economy is not exactly a hotbed for uh, young people looking to enter the workforce, and so. We've been dealing with those challenges as well as the challenge of just being a government entity that doesn't have the ability to react to changes in the market compensation uh, for employees as quickly as the private sector does. Uh, And so we have some budget constraints that have made it difficult to have the office staff where it needs to be. Uh, And, you know, when we came in, it was like at an all-time low in terms of the number of auditors, yet the amount of money we were spending as a state and at the local level continued to increase each year. And so the amount of work required to do those audits continued to go up. So we're in a pretty bad situation in terms of the staffing level uh, coming in and have had to focus on uh, getting the office back into a position to being able to do audits other than just the bare minimum mandatory audits that we have to do every year. In fact, we had actually discussed this topic when I inquired about a possible audit of the uh, children's division. Yeah. You, you said to me that there were things that are happening at the children's division that warrant an audit, especially since I don't think that agency has ever been audited, but you can't just snap your fingers and do it because you have staffing constraints. I, I imagine that's not the only instance where that's happened. True. It's not the only instance. And the thing is that when you engage in an audit, you know, it's it's very different than like filing a lawsuit, right? I mean, you can whip together a petition, file a lawsuit, and and say I filed a lawsuit. And an audit, to, when you commit to doing an audit, you're committing to a tremendous amount of staff time to actually go in and and do work that is going to take an ex, you know several months to do, and you know will take in some cases upwards of a year to get done with and issue a report. And so that's a big decision uh, when you're dealing with limited resources to to decide, hey, where are we going to focus this limited amount of staff time that we have? Yeah. And there was another instance where I think a state senator had asked your office to look into the St. Louis City Justice Center, which is colloquial term for the jail. Sure. There clearly are problems at that jail. People have died there. And, like, there's a lot of evidence that maybe an audit would be necessary. But, like, are you going to be facing the same type of staffing problems with the Children's Division about going in there and looking into whatever's going on there? I would say that the Children's Division is, division is probably a bigger workload, you know, in terms of, like, the size of the audit, the amount of time it would take to do it than the Justice Center would be. The Justice Center, you know, we're in the middle of conducting an investigation, and there's the oversight board that has been created and really the basis of the whole complaint around the justice center is that the oversight board hasn't been able or allowed to go in and do their oversight function so we're looking into that and then other specific allegations um 
you know, that were raised regarding the Justice Center. And we'll, you know, we're, we're not even in a position to be able to do an audit there because it's a city it's a city government and and we haven't uh, I mean, there's a there's an open question as that but it's not a certainty that we would be able to do an audit right now of the justice center even if we decided that was the right thing to do so it's a little bit different context but yeah during your swearing in, you outlined two major goals the first was looking at the spending of federal covid dollars how has the work on that been so far well, you know, as I kind of described, when we got in in January and I began looking at our what we call the audit plan, which is kind of the roadmap for the upcoming year of how we're going to spend our time and on what audits, you know, the first thing that I realized was that we didn't have enough people to really do anything other than what we were required to do by law. We had maybe a couple of thousand of staff, you know, a couple thousand staff hours, which, you know, is is probably one audit worth of, of hours available to, like, make a decision on what we what did we want to do from a like a discretionary standpoint on on audits so the the covid money um has been part of the what we call the single audit which is a really boring uh term for the audit of all the federal funds that is done every year we are just now getting into looking at some of the uh, pandemic era food programs there have been a lot of concerns around um fraud and the meal programs for students and for adults that were, you know, that money came to the state from the federal government. It was administered through the Department of Health and Senior Services, and there were a lot of nonprofit entities that got access to those funds in order to, uh, you know, provide meals. And so there's a lot of questions about were meals actually provided in the amount that uh, has been claimed, uh, or was some of that money siphoned off and used inappropriately? And so that's probably the biggest. Uh, pandemic era uh, audit that is underway right now that's not just a routine audit um, and you know it's it's one that we're just now beginning and we'll be working on in the next year yeah with other covid spending is this something that you can even do in full right now considering the state has you know another year to allot the money and, and then even longer to spend it I, yeah, I expect that the the question of how covid money is spent both at the state level and at the local level, will be around for the next several years. I mean, I think it could it could last the entirety of my term, you know, where that money is is being spent and then audit work is taking place as a result of the expenditures. So I think, you know, it's not a uh, at the end of this year, there's nothing else to see here. There's a there's a lot of runway left on uh, the expenditures, you know, like you said they have I think even until 2026 to spend the money. I think it has to be allocated uh, next year, but have until 2026, I believe, to spend a lot of that money. The other goal you mentioned would be upping the auditing of Missouri schools. How has that goal been worked on so far? Well, it's another one of those uh, goals that has been uh, kind of set on the uh, the back burner until we get staff to a level where we can ma manage the mandatory audits and then have some time left over for discretionary. We did initiate the first at least what I believe to be the first discretionary school audit that the auditor's office has done in a very, very long time. Uh, I don't think there was one done under Auditor Galloway that wasn't done as a result of a petition, but we're in the middle of the Francis House School District audit right now. There were a lot of issues raised about uh, a bond issue for some construction projects at Francis Howell uh, where those projects were going over budget by like almost double what their initial projected cost was. And so that was the, the basis for deciding, hey, that Francis Howell was going to be, you know, the school district where we were going to 
direct our discretionary audit resources at. And uh, that report is getting pretty close to uh, being done, I think. Is one of the challenges with like auditing school districts that may have encountered something troubling is that it's 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 easy to get attention to a school district that's in a major metro area like Francis Howell, but in a place where it's more rural and there really is no media media like infrastructure whatsoever, it's possible that some wrongdoing may be going on outside public view. That's an assumption. Maybe maybe people get on Facebook in like Wright County and complain about the school districts. But is that one of the issues here about like finding like what the actual problem is? Well, I do think that the lack of uh, of a news reporting infrastructure in a lot of these uh, small towns is a, a significant factor where you don't have a reporter at the school board meeting or at the city, not just the school, but the city council meeting or, or, or whatever. And as a result of that, there's no public attention being paid to what's going on in those in those settings. So I do think that that has an effect on uh, what's going on in terms of where yeah, you know, fraud at least is perceived to be occurring or mismanagement is perceived to be occurring. That being said, we do still get whistleblower complaints. I mean, a lot of the, you know, what I would call the juiciest audits that have uh, fraud components to them are occurring in the most rural areas in the state. And so, and those all come as a result of whistleblower complaints that come through the whistleblower hotline of somebody in the city, whether they be an employee of the city government or the whatever the entity is that is is going to be audited, or just a citizen or taxpayer that is seeing things that they think raises a red flag and and reports it to us, and so that's the um, that's the kind of the basis for a lot of the stuff that we do. I, I do think it's important to put in context about the pledge that you had about looking into school districts. This was at a time when there was a lot of uproar over critical race theory and diversity curriculum. And frankly, the uproar has really died down in the last two years compared to other issues. Yeah, Is that one of the reasons why that just may not be top of mind for you right now? No, it's not. I mean, the, the we would be auditing, we would be doing more auditing of, of schools because I always talked about during the campaign, I know there was a lot of conjecture around the curriculum issues like critical race theory. And we said that if the legislature passes some law that gives guidance to schools about what they can and can't have as part of a curriculum, that that could be an audit focus for us. But when I talked during the campaign about auditing schools, I talked about the fact that we are lagging. Our, our test scores are terrible. We have two-thirds of the kids in the state that aren't proficient in math and science, and over half the kids in the state don't read on grade level. And to me, that's an issue with how are we spending the billions of dollars every year that's allocated to K-12 education, and why are we not seeing results in terms of you know, better test scores, uh, you know, why are we not seeing kids proficient at the grade level in these basic core subjects that every kid should have a mastery or at least a basic understanding of when they graduate from a public school? You launched an audit of the state's cannabis program. Why did you decide to do that? Well, the the marijuana programs together between the recreational and the, and the medical programs make up like, I don't know, uh, some significant portion, I don't remember the statistic now, but it's like they make up like a third of the language in the entire constitution now. Uh, that stat might be a little bit off, but they're you know, easily rank up at the very top of the list of the most impactful or biggest kind of sea change policy decisions 
that have been made in the state in the last several years. And uh, obviously, it's created a new industry, which is heavily regulated by the government, that is servicing, you know, the entire population of the state. And there's been a lot of public interest in that program. And so we decided, and actually I was asked this during the campaign last year at the Missouri Press Association Candidate Forum, uh, if I was going to do an audit of the marijuana program. And I said, yeah, I, I would intend to do that. It's a big program and it's the subject of a lot of attention, both publicly and in the legislature. The legislative interest has died off a little bit, but there for a couple of years, it was definitely a big uh, subject of conversation in the legislature and looking into the decision-making process of setting up the program and how certain decisions were made, uh, such as like the number of licenses that were going to be handed out. So we're doing that audit. Um, you know, it's a it's a performance audit. It's one of a handful of those that we're uh, in the process of working on now. And I would expect that, that will come out sometime next year. It's no secret that there's a lot of money and political pressure associated with this industry. But do you think that it is much different from other industries that depend on the state for license purposes? Well, I do just in the fact that it's, you know, I mean, most other regulated in industries that, you know, where you have a profession that's licensed by the state, it's if you meet a certain set of qualifications, you can get a license. This is, you know, the only one that I can think of where, um, you can meet a set of qualifications and not get a license because there's not enough licenses available to give you. And, you know, that was an administrative decision and it's one that we'll look, we're looking at as part of the audit and determining how was that, what was the criteria criteria for making that decision? And it may be the case that the department has a great answer for that. And, uh, you know, and has a, has a defensible position on it. And if that's the case, then great. Um, but that's, that's the big difference uh, that I think drives kind of the disparity between this type of, uh, you know, regulated industry versus any other type of regulated industry that the state has a oversight role in. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with State Auditor Scott Fitzpatrick. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Auditor Scott Fitzpatrick. Your office has been in the news a lot lately, and it's been over a fiscal note that you issued over a set of proposed constitutional amendments that would legalize abortion in Missouri. Let's kind of start from the top. What process did you use to evaluate these proposed amendments on a fiscal basis? Well, it's the same process that has been used on every other uh, initiative petition in the last 25 years that the auditor's office has been in charge of the fiscal note process. And that process really involves, you know, we get, number one, we have a very condensed time frame to, to do this work. And there's a period of time, and these initiative petitions fell in the period of time where we have a tremendous number of, of these coming into our office at any given time. And we have 20 days from start to finish. And the first 10 days of that is reserved for people to submit any material they want us to consider uh, in writing the fiscal note. And then the second 10 days is designated for us to analyze that information and actually write the fiscal note and fiscal note summary. And when you have, you know, in this case, what was there, 11 
initiative petitions just related to abortion that came in at once, all with subtle differences. But there were also other initiative petitions that had nothing to do with abortion that were in the process at that time as well. And so when you look at all of that, we have a, a very small amount of time to try to make a decision, you know, analyze the information, make a decision on this. So the process that we went through is we put it out, sent it out to uh, all the state agencies and a handful of local governments, around 60 local government entities, or maybe 60 altogether entities that we sent it out to comment for, including school districts, including city, county governments, and say, what's the impact of this petition, um, uh, initiative petition, if it were to pass, on your political subdivision? And, And by the way, we also take any submission, even if we didn't specifically request it, we would take a submission from any other government entity that wanted to provide one or from a proponent or opponent of the initiative that wanted to submit them. And we consider all of those in the process of drafting the fiscal note, fiscal note summary. So we did that. And the overwhelming response, other than a response from Greene County, was that this you know initiative petition, which would legalize abortion, is not going to have a net change. It's not going to cause a net change to state costs or state revenues, right? So um, you know, we looked at that and we said, you know, this is all pretty reasonable. We printed it. The one we even printed the one from Greene County that said they were going to lose some property tax revenue because of fewer citizens as a result of abortion. We sent that to the attorney general, and then the job from there is the attorney general has to approve the legal content and form, which has historically meant d- does it have 50 words or less, you know, excluding articles, and does it use any you know outrageous language and in the history of the 25 years leading up to now that had always been a perfunctory, you know, sign off. There'd never been a fiscal note rejected by the attorney general's office, but that's the process that we used. Um, and this fiscal note, just as we have in every other one that came before it and after it. So what did you make of the fact that attorney general Andrew Bailey would not sign off on the fiscal note? Well, I mean, we, we, you know, it's all pretty public at this point, and it was that, you know, we didn't think that they had the authority to reject it based on the fact that they didn't like the numbers. And, um, you know, so we, we just said, listen, if there are, if there's a, a, a like a cogent legal argument to be made that we are actually, because the, the issue was that they wanted us, in their opinion, rejecting the fiscal note, they said, well, we think you're going to lose 100% of the, we would lose as a state 100% of our federal Medicaid money. Because this being legalized would put us in violation of federal abortion law. And we just said, well, we don't see that, you know, and if you can, but if you can provide like a, you know, a legal argument that's like, you know, you know, shows the rationale for that, then we could consider changing the fiscal note. We never received that. And ultimately there was a stalemate because we said we're not going to change it. Uh, As much as I dislike abortion and want these initiatives to fail, you know, I can't let that play into the decision I'm making about how we present the fiscal impact of an initiative petition to voters. And so we said, we're not going to change it unless we get like a legitimate analysis here that says that, you know, our initial fiscal note was wrong, which by the way, you know, the attorney general's office had the opportunity, they were one of the entities we requested a a statement from in the initial uh, drafting of the fiscal note. And their response was that it would have no impact other than if it resulted in increased litigation, they may have to request some additional resources for their office. But there was no analysis at that point provided that there was an issue relating to Medicaid funding. So we didn't change it. They didn't sign off on it. It was a stalemate. The petitioner sued 
everybody, sued us, sued the attorney general, and sued the secretary of state, saying that some one of these people didn't do their job, and we are owed this certified, you know, summary statement so we can circulate these initiative petitions for signatures. And then it became a situation where the courts had to kind of weigh everything out and figure out who who did what right and who didn't who did what wrong. Do you think that this was a larger issue than just about how to describe the abortion costs? It was really about like your authority to ha- be be the the ultimate arbiter of fiscal notes and not the attorney general getting like a a, a de facto veto. Yeah, I think that that was a big part. I mean, obviously that that had a, the outcome of the case would have had if it had gone differently would have radically changed the way these things would be done moving forward. And if the attorney general's office did, in fact, have essentially veto authority over the auditor's fiscal note estimates, that would, I think, render the statute unconstitutional because in that way, you end up in a, in a situation where you, the auditor and the attorney general could go round and round and round 50 times. And you know that process could take an unlimited amount of time in a situation where you could have a petitioner that never received a certified uh, you know, ballot summary. So in that case, yeah, I mean, it was important because had we, you know, lost the lawsuit or had we caved to the pressure to change it, it would have set a terrible precedent moving forward that anytime there's a politically difficult issue that the attorney general, you know, doesn't agree with the auditor on that they could you know, try to trump the auditor on the fiscal. Impact. Or if there's a Democratic attorney general and a Republican auditor and there's like a there's there's an amendment to ban abortion or something. Yeah. And the attorney general said this is going to cost 10 quadrillion dollars. Like sure. like it seems like it could actually backfire on Republicans in the long run. Well, when Schmidt was the attorney general and Galloway was the auditor, there was the referendum on HB 126, which never actually made the ballot. But there was going to be a referendum you know, and, and Galloway actually wrote a fiscal note that said that that bill, if it were to stay in effect, could cost the state its entire Medicaid, you know, budget, you know, at that time, which was like $7 billion. It was significantly less than it is now. Um, and Schmidt, you know, it was submitted to Schmidt. Schmidt certified it. You know, and I actually think we, we know, obviously, that that fiscal note was, was wrong, right? I mean, we know that HB 126 has been in law since 2019 or what I guess, you know, when it fully went into effect when 2022 yeah when when roe but you know the state has not has not received a threat as far as we're aware of any loss of federal medicaid funding because of that bill being enacted and you know if if there was ever going to be a case where the attorney general and the auditor disagreed you would think that that would be the one where schmidt would have tried to say hey galloway you know we think your fiscal note's wrong here um but that didn't happen you know so Clearly, you know, in their estimation, if they were even thinking about it, that was not something that they had the power to do. I think that there is a perception, especially among proponents of abortion rights, that this fiscal note standoff, as well as the fights over the ballot summary language, is really just delay tactics to prevent these initiatives from even having a chance to get on the ballot. What, What do you think of that perception? Because, frankly, some Republicans like Senator Andrew Koenig have said they want these delay tactics to happen because they don't want anything on the ballot. Well, I don't want anything on the ballot either. And to that, I mean, yeah, I think that's totally, I mean, I think that's totally what happened. Obviously, the court has said that that they can circulate these things for signature without a certified summary statement. I think they are doing, well, I think they maybe began doing well, some that's of that. Well, that's, I, I, this is where it gets confusing. There are two groups trying to roll back the yeah. abortion ban. 
The one that we were talking about have not decided on an initiative yet. The other one that we're talking about um, right. is yeah. circulating a petition, but they're suing over the fiscal note and the ballot summary right now. But continue. But no, I think I think that the, the byproduct being a delay in the certification of this of the summary statement or the you know the ballot summary uh, is certainly one that everybody that doesn't want the initiative petition to pass. Uh, has considered, you know what I mean? And I mean, I don't want it to pass either. Um, that being said, I, I also realized that I have, a, I have a statutory obligation and a constitutional responsibility to do the job as it's been assigned to me by the Constitution and by the, uh, the, the statutes that give me the authority to write the fiscal notes. And I was just trying to do that job, and my goal was to do that and do it right and then, you know, fight against these initiatives on the back end, right? I wasn't trying to – I didn't want to – I didn't find it appropriate for us to use the, you know, the this process of drafting the the ballot summary to try to derail initiative petitions because um, that wouldn't be right if it was happening in the other direction, right? If, you know, if you had a bunch of Democrats in charge of the statewide offices and Republicans were trying to get something on the ballot – you know, I'd be pretty pissed off if that's what they were doing to us. I mean, I just try to look at it that way, too. Moving to the 2024 election, how do you think the dynamics of the legislature will change since it is an election year and people are running for other offices? Well, you know, it's going to be hard for it to get much worse, you know, in terms of just like the the d- the dynamic in the legislature, particularly in the Senate. Right. I mean, I and I don't think I'm saying anything that that. This, all the senators themselves wouldn't agree with. I mean, it's a tough environment over there to get anything done. And it's only going to be being made more difficult in my estimation by the fact that you have uh, several of them that are going to be running for higher office. And, you know, the, uh, you know, in, in an era where paid media is pretty expensive and fu- fundraising is hard, uh, earned media is you know, if you're a state senator, it's pretty easy to generate. And so I expect that you see some of them using that platform that they have in the Senate to to put their get their name in the, you know, in the press some. And when that happens, it's likely to be the byproduct of that is likely to be a, a gridlocked legislative session. That being said, I, I mean, I don't want to write the whole thing off. I think I think uh, the leadership, you know, has wants to get things done. I think that the combination of Cindy O'Loughlin and Caleb Browden in the Senate are, I mean, I think they're, they're good leaders and have the ability to, you know, find common ground if there's any to be found, but it's going to be a tough year, I think, legislatively. And uh, I hope I'm wrong. You know, I hope we can get some good stuff done, but you know, on the other hand, it it also can stop some bad stuff from happening when you have a legislature doesn't pass a lot of bills. So you never know what you're going to, you never know what you're going to end up with, but I do think it's going to complicate things a little bit. We're looking at Republican primaries for most of the statewide positions in 2024, Secretary of State, Governor and Lieutenant Governor, and even Treasurer, even though there currently is a Republican serving in that position. What do you make of all these primaries? Well, it's not unusual. I mean, anytime you have, um, I think I think 2020 was a little bit of an anomaly when you had um you know, you had Kehoe and Schmidt and myself, all three of us were on the ballot and all three of us ran pretty much unopposed. Kind of. Kehoe did have to face off against Mike Carter, who rebounded in 2020 and ran an, an excellent state Senate race. But continue. Right. Um, and, and so, I mean, we, we, we got out and, you know, and, and didn't have a lot of 
you know, other than that, didn't have opposition in the primary. I think it was a function of a few things. I think one, um, you know, I think that the Senate didn't have as many people leaving. You know, we're in a situation now where there's a lot of, there are a lot of people term limited that are talented and have ambitions to, you know, go to the statewide level. And um, you didn't have as much of that going on in 2020. And so I think that's part of it. But I just think that generally speaking, Republicans in Missouri, we have primaries. It's, you know, usually we have crowded primaries much more so than the Democrats do. And I don't think that that's going to change as long as we have, you know, such a dominant kind of position statewide with the electorate as being really difficult to beat in a, in a statewide general election. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the Democrats, obviously it's, uh, you know, in a lot of these races, the statewide, whoever gets put up on a statewide ticket, it's like a, they're like sacrificing themselves, you know what I mean? And so, um, you know, that's just the reality of the situation. I think as long as the dynamic is like that in the state, you're going to continue to see crowded primaries. Yeah. In a similar vein, how do you believe Missouri Republicans will fare in the 2024 elections? Oh, I mean, unless we unless we have a, you know, an Aiken moment, I mean, I think we're going to it'll be a clean sweep again. I don't think that there's a much of a chance at, at any level for the Democrat to prevail statewide right now. Have you heard about the rationale about why your office, the auditor's office, is not on the ballot during presidential years? Was that done on purpose? And was that aimed at, like, actually allowing you not to have some of the normal political pressures that the other statewides have? Uh, I don't know, honestly. I've I've heard theories about it being that, you know, it's like a continuity of government thing, like, you know, having like some... I, you know, it. You know, this dates back to like the 1800s or whatever. Was that in the new constitution that I, they? I mean, I wasn't there. You know, I should go back in time and ask them. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I don't. I don't know why it is, but it'll be interesting because in 2026, the auditor's office will be the only state. There's not even a Senate race in that nope. cycle, so it'll be a very low turnout election. No, and <laughs> and if we recall, in 2014, the Democrats didn't even put up a candidate against Tom Schweik, which meant that the Constitution Party and the Libertarian Party's nominees got like 20 percent of the vote, which meant they got ballot access for a long time even you're right that it's very possible that that may not be as marquee as people think based off recent precedent yeah i i you know i hope that i'm right about this i mean i guess it's possible i could be wrong but generally speaking i think you know the you know republican uh you know the republican positions uh you know especially out state are what people gravitate towards and that you know the democrats the democrat party has really kind of gravitated in my view towards i mean has gotten a lot more radical and i think you can say there's an element of the republican party that's that's gotten radical as well but generally speaking it's not quite as mainstream i don't think in the republican party and that's you know why it's radical as in like like crazy or radical as in tubular like the adjective. No, don't an, don't answer yeah, that. I That's wasn't a joke. Tubular. Okay. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the different like factions of the parties. Do you feel like having like a splintered Republican? I said there's always 
you know, primaries with Republicans, having that many people in for a position versus having kind of one person on the Democrats to kind of go behind. Do you think that puts uh, Republicans at a disadvantage or not? Well, yeah. Anytime you have a, a tough primary where you have candidates spending, you know, they're raising money and they, if they have to spend it all in a, in a primary, that puts them at a, le- a less advantageous position in the general. But I don't think it's, an, you know, enough <laughs> to matter, you know what I mean, in terms of the outcome of the general election. Uh, unless, like I said, unless we have a really bad candidate, um, you know, on the Republican side that prevails in a primary, which we have had happen. You know, we have had that happen before. And, you know, so if, as long as that doesn't happen, I think we'll be fine. All right. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Auditor Fitzpatrick, for joining us on the show. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can find all of our work at stlpr.org. And Auditor Fitzpatrick, where can people find you on the Internet where you want to be found? Well, that's a good question. Uh, auditor.mo.gov. You can go there to see the audits that we're putting out, uh, find the whistleblower hotline, uh, at Fitzpatrick MO on Twitter, and then you just type Scott Fitzpatrick in the search bar on Facebook, and I've, we've got a Facebook page. Politically Speaking is produced by Sarah Kellogg, Rachel Lipman, and me, Jason Rosenbaum. The show is edited by Fred Ehrlich. Read all of our coverage at stlpr.org. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Politically Speaking by searching the term Politically Speaking on Apple Podcasts. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.